So I'd like to base this evening's talk in a poem that many of you will be familiar with. It's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. Chapter one is I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't for my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. And chapter five. I walk down another street. So I'd like to draw some parallels between this poem and the path that we all are walking here on retreat and in our lives. And in some ways to try and trace the journey that we all make to get to a place where we're truly walking down another street. A path of freedom, a path of kindness, a path of compassion. So if we go back to chapter one, walking down the street, the deep hole in the sidewalk, I fall in, I'm lost, I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Now, I think that this chapter describes the many layers of confusion that can distort our capacity to live the life we long to live, a conscious, a mindful, an intentional life that is guided by wakefulness, guided by compassion, guided by understanding. And I think we all see that without these qualities, life indeed can feel really full of holes. That we can go through our day, go through our life, feeling that somehow we live in this chaotic world, inwardly and outwardly, where random events just seem to happen to us. And this chapter of the poem, of course, refers to the kind of sense of helplessness and powerlessness and even despair that we can flounder in when we just don't see a way out. We might find ourselves in situations or relationships of conflict that we feel helpless to change. We might despair at finding ourselves acting or speaking in ways that we know undermine our well-being. Or we might feel very frustrated when we see ourselves walking in our hearts or our minds very familiar repetitive circles of obsession or preoccupation or anxiety. 
And sometimes we just feel in our life kind of like ambushed by thought storms, by emotional storms. This first chapter of the poem really describes this sense of just feeling a little bit lost. But it also describes what in Buddhist teaching is referred to as samsara. And the the word for this in in Tibetan actually translates literally as walking in circles. Where our, our mind or our lives can feel very impulsive, at times very unconscious, where our hearts or our minds can feel governed by whatever passing thought stream or whatever passing emotion arises. And actually, where too many things in the world or too many things even in our own hearts feel to be something of a gatekeeper of our happiness. This sense, when there's a sense of being lost, lost or bewildered even in our minds or our lives, it is also a sense where there is no refuge to be found anywhere. Nothing that can be relied on or rested in. And I think most of us really see that confusion or a sense of confusion is not emotionally neutral but actually often, very often, opens the doors to very powerful, at times even overwhelming, feelings of self-doubt, of depression, of despair. What is also true is that this is a very place where this path and this practice actually begins. It's where the path of awakening begins. The Buddha, I think, put this path that we are cultivating here very firmly in the classroom of our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and our lives. He never actually spoke about finding freedom or compassion or kindness outside of the difficult, but within the difficult. Reb Anderson puts it in this wonderful way. He said that the Buddhists don't live in the, live in the suburbs of suffering. They live downtown. <laughs> it is this teaching, I think, of the imminence of awakening, the imminence of compassion, that is really what made the Buddha a radical in his time. When everyone around him, when all of the spiritual seekers around him were busy devising ingenious ways and strategies to subdue their minds or to overcome or to transcend their bodies or transcend their lives or to to look in at at life and and body and mind with some kind of disdain or judgment. And then the Buddha was something of a genius and kind of holding up his hand and saying, wait a minute, just wait a minute. Maybe we actually need to pay attention to what's going on here. Maybe we need to look more closely at this life 
Maybe we're being asked to understand, to make peace with, and to find freedom in this life rather than to get rid of it. And perhaps, as the Buddha suggested, that in this world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, that this is actually the ground of liberation and compassion. But the Buddha also acknowledged, I think as we acknowledge, that in this fragile and unpredictable life, that each one of us will meet our own measure of the joyful and the lovely, and we will also meet our own measure of affliction and adversity. And none of us, I think, can be successful in totally finding a way to totally defend ourselves against our life. So what this path teaches us, essentially, is that affliction and adversity do not ask for aversion and for resistance and for judgment, but for compassion and for patience and for acceptance and understanding. You know, and in my experience in meditative practice, that this is the first and perhaps the most radical leap that people make in their practice, in their lives, to be able to move from a place of resistance, of blame and aversion, to a place of investigating, understanding, and compassion. Because what we really see, that this path of awakening that certainly we've been taught and are cultivating in this tradition, is actually not concerned with manipulating experience. It's not concerned with manipulating the world, but for transforming our hearts and minds which is the ground for transforming our world. And perhaps for many of us, the very first step and perhaps the most important step we take in this journey is is to find the willingness within ourselves to look our life, to look this moment in the eye. And actually to, to be able to look distress and struggle in the eye, just as the Buddha found he needed to do when he sat under the Bodhi tree. You know, it's so very easy to to romanticize the Buddha and imagine him hanging out under the Bodhi tree, you know, thinking amazing thoughts and, you know, having fantastic experiences. Actually, when we read the stories, the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree with a mind that looked a lot like ours. The mind that looked a lot like ours. But for him too, the key was not to get rid of, not to deny, not to disdain, but to begin to know distress as distress, pain as pain, struggle as struggle, just as we are asked to know and he was asked to know, happiness as happiness and peace as peace and gladness as gladness. This sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet, it's really not very easy. It's an immense step. I would say it's almost an immense leap. But it, it, you know, Nagarjuna, 
Evans, you know, as he once said, what will we do with a life that doesn't go away? It's a lot of things we could try to do. And then I think many of us come back to this place of acknowledging this is the life we're asked to meet, however it is. This first chapter goes on, it isn't my fault, it takes forever to find a way out of the hole. Now, this is not a statement of irresponsibility. You know, it's not a statement of dismissiveness. But there is a recognition that often the confusion that we meet in our lives, that we meet on retreat, the confusion that this path begins in, it's not our fault. You know, I doubt if anybody woke up this morning deciding this was a good day to be agitated. You know, a good day to be depressed or a good day to be anxious. I doubt if anybody came into this room today and said, well, this is a really fine sitting to be lost in impatience or frustration or resistance. We did not choose the bodies we were born into or the families or the circumstances. And actually, when we look, I don't know how it is for you, but when I look at some of the holes that I fall into or get lost in, I find they've got a very long lineage. (laughs) You know, we may have had generations of ancestors who were practiced despair or aversion or impatience or fear exceptionally well. And none of us, in truth, are independent of conditions. Through our lives, we are impacted by the stories and the lives of others, just as each one of us, moment to moment, is impacting the lives and stories of others. We see in so many ways, you know, the stories and the habits and the views of those around us, our wider culture, those close to us, how the many ways they may have been incorporated into our own story, playing their part in shaping our own confusion or our own understanding. I think this is important to acknowledge this wider landscape of how we came to be who we are or who we believe ourselves to be in this moment. Where did we begin to learn to fear or to doubt ourselves or to be judgmental? We were unlikely to be born filled with views or filled with aversion. Lesson, we learn many lessons in our lives, not all helpful. And in truth, it's no one's fault because everyone has their own lineage. And yet, isn't it so easy in the midst of frustration or in the midst of despair that for that our mind goes to, to fault and to blame so easily and often directed inwardly? That if I was a better person or a more worthy person or a better yogi, everything would be just marvelous. I think part of what we understand or begin to understand in this path is is to understand the ways in which fault compounds suffering. 
This is not actually, again, a statement of passivity or dismissiveness. But we see that blame or aversion or fear is often what we tend to do with that terrible feeling of being helpless. But we also see that if we feed, tend to feed blame, particularly blame that is directed inwardly, that I'm just not good enough or not trying hard enough or not worthy enough, if we tend to have feed or direct blame inwardly, we will also tend in ourselves often towards striving and becoming. I need to become this other kind of person to have the right kind of experience. You know, I need to, you know, if I could get two breaths in a row, I'd be a sort of major success. And I think so often, you know, in these kind of constructed self-images, we so swing between success and failure, between good and bad and right and wrong. And the path is actually suggesting something else. To learn what it means to to be still. To know that stillness is a place often of wise action. Of being able to make changes outwardly. But that stillness is actually also the place where we can begin to listen inwardly. And to go underneath some of the stories and under some of the fabrications about who we believe ourselves to be. And to be able to begin to soften, to embrace, to befriend, to know pain is pain, struggle is struggle, confusion as confusion. It is the first step in no longer being helpless no longer feeling powerless, not needing to be lost. Chapter 2. Still walking down the same street with the deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. And it still takes a long time to get out. I think uh, many of us can probably relate to this. A friend of mine calls it conscious incompetence. (laughs) We actually know what's going on, but we're still doing it. You know, I think it's the most frustrating place in practice. You know, we've started to wake up inwardly sufficiently enough to know what's going on, and then we end up being a spectator at our own disasters. <laughs> that is so frustrating. That's the moment we think, oh, I was really, I was better off before I started this stuff, you know? <laughs> now, I, before I was unconsciously incompetent, and now I'm consciously incompetent. That is so frustrating. And yet, I don't think there's a shortcut around this. I don't actually think there's a shortcut around this because this is when we're actually starting to meet some of the power of our psychological and emotional habits. We pretend we don't see it. 
How many times have we maybe said that to ourselves? Here I am again. This is a very, by the way, a, a word which is really useful to exile from our vocabulary again. I don't know of any other such word that is such a saboteur of motivation and inspiration as this word again. There I am again. I'm in the same place. Of, I'm fantasizing again. I'm obsessing again. I'm blaming again. Now, it's a sort of interesting, this place of sort of conscious incompetence, because we sort of wonder, what is it that maybe might keep us there? And I, I th think sometimes we can have a little, a little rather kind of perverse attachment to some of our howls. You know the Greek story of Sisyphus, you know, where he's sentenced to push this rock up this hill forever, you know, by the gods, his entire life. You know, he's just pushing this rock up the mountain, you know, gets to the top, rolls back down again. You know, there he goes again, pushing the same rock up again the hill. And, you know, in some ways, of course, if it, you know, we just accept this is a story, this is Sisyphus's life. Maybe Sisyphus could have made a different choice. Maybe he was in love with this rock. Maybe he could have said, you know, like, forget it, I'm done pushing this rock up this hill. This rock can be quite happy sitting at the bottom of the mountain. I can be quite happy not pushing. L look at this place where we, where we use the word again. I pretend I don't see it. I remember a, a, a yogi at Gaia House once telling me he was on a long retreat. And it happens. Everybody's got their moments of great discontent. And they told me they had the thought that the solution of, was obvious. It was chocolate. <laughs> you know, and to get chocolate, you know, you had to walk like more than a mile. You know, so, uh, you know, this yogi was, you know, impressed. He well knew what was going on. Set off, off to the store. They said, the hallway, you know, there's this little voice in the back of their mind. I know this is not going to work. I know this is not going to work. Got to the store, got the chocolate, you know, started eating chocolate. I knew it wasn't going to work. All the way back, back to their cushion, another mile and a half down the hill. I knew it didn't need to do that. I knew it didn't. But there was somewhere where there was still this hook. So Sometimes it can be interesting, those hooks. You know, uh, you know, it's kind of like if somebody on a retreat really annoys you, and, and, you know, you decide, you know, you're really going to set them straight, you know. So you're going to write them a note. And you know this is a really bad idea, you know. You, like, you know, right from the get-go, this is a really bad idea. You would hate it if somebody did this to you. But there's a certain kind of self-righteousness, isn't there? You know, so in order to kind of mitigate knowing this is a really bad idea, you sign this aversive note, meta. <laughs> you know. Like, quit shuffling meta, you know. Thank you, you know. It, it, isn't it interesting, though, those hooks? Now, letting, learning somehow to let go of, of, you know, some of these habits and, and these attachments doesn't mean letting go of discernment or discriminating wisdom. What we all recognize in life, whether it is inwardly or outwardly, that suffering has causes. And causes are to be understood. 
we don't make a mantra or a cliche out of just let go. Suffering has causes. Causes are to be understood. And in many ways, the whole investigative part of this path, which we will speak about, the whole investigative part of this path is really for us to see for ourselves moment to moment where there is distress and struggle and suffering, where there are causes and where are the causes for the ending of suffering. This is a kind of basic formula of this teaching, applied inwardly, applied outwardly. What we do see that some of our, and perhaps a great deal of our emotional and psychological suffering that keeps, where we keep getting dumped in the same hole, is, is actually born of not understanding what causes suffering. Now, waking up in this path is not just about waking up to the breath. You know, it's about waking up our capacity for wise discernment or discriminating wisdom. Pretending something is not happening is not a good option. You know, pretending, you know, if we think of this just on a meditative level, because clearly this is a much bigger subject. But if we think about it just on a meditative level, you know, we can pretend it doesn't matter if I just somehow entertain, you know, a few moments of aversion, you know, or a few moments of heedlessness, or a few moments of craving, in, even when we know they don't serve us well. Because all that does is to deepen the habits of aversion and craving and heedlessness. Patro Rinpoche, he, he, once, he once wrote, he said, do not take lightly small moments of heedlessness, believing they can do no harm. Because even a tiny spark can set alight a mountain. Do not take lightly small moments of mindfulness, believing they can hardly help. For drops of water, one by one, in time can fill an ocean. Instead of pretending in this path, this teaching, we're asked to be mindful moment to moment, of what we are feeding, what we are nurturing, what we are cultivating in our hearts and minds. That which leads us to fall into the holes or that which shows us the way out. Instead of pretending, we're encouraged to apply discernment, to apply that discriminating wisdom Letting go, the path of letting go is not about letting go of happiness or joy or calm, but letting go of the all too familiar habits that drop us into the holes. And I think it is true that, you know, one of the translations of mindfulness that I love is that everything matters. Everything is worthy of our wholehearted attention. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. 
I see it's there. I fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I get out immediately. When the Buddha talked about this path and its challenges, he sometimes talked about it as swimming against the tide. Not just the tide sometimes of our culture, our world, but the tide of our own habits and views and beliefs and fears and doubts. And that tide can feel really powerful. It can really feel powerful. I I think it's useful just to take a moment just to reflect on your own mind today and some of the thoughts and the emotions and the mental states that you experienced. And did you, have you noticed how familiar many of them feel like? I mean, some of you may have been really fortunate and had one or two new thoughts today. But have you noticed actually, like so many of them feel so familiar? How often we can get caught in the same circles of rehearsal, of resentment, of fantasy, of judgment. How many of our psychological and emotional habits can feel so familiar, it's almost like they've been with us as long as we can remember, and they can feel so intractable or so stubborn that they feel to be who we are, who we're woven into our sense of identity. It is why sometimes, you know, this gets expressed when people, you've heard people say, this is just the way I am. And actually, I, th- I find it very difficult in, in the Dharma when people start to describe themselves as a type, when they say, I'm a greed type, or I'm an aversive type, you know, I am an anxious type. I mean, personally, I feel all of us are far too, have far too much depth to be described as a type. I don't think anyone is a type. But what we do see, that if we repeat something often enough, it does feel to be a truth. One of my most loved teachings of the Buddha is when he says, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind, and that the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our world. Really, I I find that actually so profound how our world is seen through the shape of our mind and that the shape of our mind moment to moment is being shaped by what we dwell upon. I think when we look at some of the habits, the emotional psychological habits that we dwell upon, They can feel so intractable that sometimes, actually, in this kind of shortage of seeing much new, we can actually just almost feel like we're a collection of habits, which sounds like very bad news, but I would say, actually, this is very good news. 
And the reason I would say it is very good news is that habit and mindfulness simply do not coexist. And I would really encourage you not just to take that as a statement, but to experiment and really look at that in your life. Try and put on your shoes habitually and mindfully at the same time. Try and eat a meal habitually and mindfully at the same time. Try and have a glass of water or brush your teeth habitually and mindfully at the same time. You find that actually it doesn't work. It doesn't actually, they cannot coexist. So in a way, what we're doing here in cultivating our capacity for wakefulness, our capacity for mindfulness, every moment of that cultivation is a moment of disempowering habit. It is also a moment of taking the self out of habit because we can begin to see anxiety or begin to see aversion or begin to see judgment as anxiety and aversion and judgment much more approachable than I am a greedy type or I am an anxious type or I am an aversive type. But, you know, I I think it requires immense courage and dedication to step out of the realm of habit because it really is stepping into the realm of not knowing. And, And I think what we see in our lives is that habit provides a sense, an illusory sense, of a world that is predictable and known and familiar. You know, you think of this even on a psychological level. You know, we know how to react to something that seems unpleasant or threatening because we know how to avoid it. We know how to try and fix it. We know how to disconnect. It's just an emotional habit. We know how to use fantasy to smooth discontent. We know perhaps how to use willpower to overcome things that we don't like. We know how, how to use, ha- without these habits, you know what? We would be invited to see the world anew. Without these habits, we would be invited to see other people anew. And, you know, without these habits, most importantly, we would be invited to see ourselves anew. Rather than through the lens of what we think we know, which is really simply something that we have repeated to ourselves over and over again. This is so, so fascinating to me to see this. You know, recently I was teaching, I teach once a year in Holland in this actually very conservative Dutch village, you know, and once a year this conservative Dutch village has a party, like it really breaks out, you know, it goes wild, you know, it's unrecognizable actually. Um, you know, this is a village where the windows are so clean, it looks like there's no windows. And so is it, I've been going there for many years, and there's this man who lives in the village. You know, I always think of him as a very amiable character, you know. He's always around, he always says hi, you know, passes me on his bike, always says hello. I've never actually spoken to him, but he always seems a very friendly character. Much to my surprise, the night after the party, I go out of my out of the center, and I'm walking down the street past his house, and he steps out the door onto the main street in a pair of baggy gray underpants. Well, I can tell you, in a conservative Dutch village, this is something almost unknown. 
And what was interesting for me is, is every time I saw him then for the rest of the week, what did I see? The man with the baggy gray underpants, you know, it's like I couldn't see, it's like I kept having to kind of step back from that. This is this friendly, amiable guy who one morning just kind of forgot himself a little. But, but you know, it's so interesting how quickly, isn't it, that we form these, these images, these, which are really images, our habits, that we form these images about others, about ourselves, about life, and how they actually become the truth. We, we don't necessarily see anew. Now, when we look at our own minds, and someone mentioned this today, it can feel like bad news, doesn't it? I mean, it can feel somewhat disturbing and unsettling. We would rather have a different kind of mind. And sometimes our, our mind seems so, uh, it seems so endless in a way. But you know what? Actually, in terms of psychological and emotional habits, it's really kind of a short list. Kind of a short list. It's a wonderful poem by Kabir. I love this. It says, I gave up expensive clothes and bought a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I stopped being a sexual elephant, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I finally gave up anger, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. <laughs> it is actually a short list. Some of the emotional habits that weave themselves into our perceptions, our stories, our reactions. Anxiety, fear, familiar one, isn't it? Aversion, ill will, resistance, familiar one. Craving, discontent, kind of familiar, and self-view. It's good to have a short list. It's good to have a short list. It's also good to appreciate the universality of this short list. Not to take it too personally. To appreciate the universality. So what do these habits ask for? Curiosity, mindfulness, Compassion, spaciousness, patience, intentionality. In many ways, we are reteaching our hearts. We're reteaching ourselves to walk down another path rather than a path of struggle or pain, a path of wakefulness. In many ways, we're reteaching our minds their loveliness teaching our minds their loveliness. Some of you will be familiar with that part of a poem by Galway Canel. He says, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within 
of self-blessing. I personally think it is so helpful to learn to look beneath so many of our stories and to see the threads of anxiety, aversion, of craving, of self-view, like winds that are moving through those stories, fueling them, shaping our mind, being a forerunner often of our speech, our actions, and to learn how to surround those winds, to learn how to surround those threads with mindfulness and care and compassion. We begin to see the habits that can feel so intractable and historical can begin to soften. It doesn't mean they don't reoccur, but moment to moment in this practice, we reteach our minds, we reteach our hearts their loveliness. I often think of this path, of this way of moving from one kind of choicelessness to a quality of wise choice to another kind, quality of choicelessness. The first kind of choicelessness is often where we start. It's really about that first chapter, you know, where, where we can feel so governed by impulse and reactivity and by habit. And we start to begin to see the ways that impulse and reactivity and habit can begin to be replaced by intentionality and mindfulness, and kindness. And that is where we begin to have a sense of possibility. The choices we make moment to moment to live a wakeful life, to cultivate a wakeful heart. Which really is what the fourth chapter is about. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk around it. When we begin to know with mindfulness the holes that we are prone into, prone to fall into, we know that falling into the hole is just one of the possibilities available to us. That with wise effort, with wise mindfulness, there may be the possibility of walking down another path. And I think there comes with insight a real genuine sense of unwillingness inwardly to keep walking down pathways that we know lead only to struggle and confusion and conflict. You know, think of so many examples of this on a retreat. For example, you know, the, the bell goes to summon everyone to a sitting. Now, has anyone had that momentary surge of saying, oh, no, you know, that perhaps a momentary surge of, of aversion or resistance, better things to do, you know. Like maybe it's time for a nap, you know, or whip out my phone. I'm sure there's important messages, you know, or, or read a book. And you know what happens when we just, when we face that moment of knowing that we could actually really in that moment feed these historical habits which is only going to deepen them. Or we could nurture the intentionality and the dedication we have to keep showing up. It's an interesting moment, that one. Because what we feed will grow. What we feed will deepen. 
Have you ever had that moment where perhaps you show up for breakfast tomorrow and, and you, didn't ha you don't get that favorite yogurt that you had today? And, and you notice that moment where you think, I think I'll write the cooks a note, you know, surely, you know, they, they need kind of straightening out here. And then there's that other moment that says, you know, maybe I don't need to do that. Maybe I can just receive what's offered. What pathway are we going to walk? What pathway are we going to walk? These moments are like, like constantly arising, moment to moment. Do we walk down the history trail, or do we open another door, walk around the holes? Not because the holes are bad or wrong, but because they only have one outcome that we know, which is actually to reinforce that power of habit. Walking around the house is more than this because it's a shift that is made inwardly from this sense of helplessness to a feeling of confidence, inner confidence. And quite frankly, I think this is one of the greatest blessings in this path is to be able to move from a place of, of doubt and helplessness to that sense of inner confidence and, and strength. It's making a shift from being identified with the holes to a greater sense of freedom. You know, awakening is a training. Freedom is actually a practice. It's not just a destination. It is actually a moment-to-moment -moment practice. It is a practice that asks for a lot of patience. It asks for a lot of perseverance. But it does also really cultivate perhaps what we're all looking for, a mind and a heart that's truly a friend. Really a mind and a heart that can truly feel like a friend. And you know, this practice that might at this point feel so effortful does, with patience and with practice, become much more effortless. Because in a sense, there's a great happiness in practicing freedom. There's a great happiness in practicing wakefulness. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. This is really this movement into this other dimension of choicelessness. You know, where uh, it's really, in a way, the third noble truth, the embodiment of kindness. You know, what we do here as a practice also has a fruition the embodiment in a boundless, immeasurable heart of peace, of kindness, of compassion. The Buddha speaks about the potentiality of our hearts and minds as being radiant and luminous, as being boundless and immeasurable, no longer governed by ill will or craving or aversion. This may sound very impossible, but this is the other street. I think it's, it's really helpful just to finish, just to, to know that Pali, the, the reco original recorded language of this teaching, is a language of verbs. It's not a language of nouns. So in a sense, when it talks about this path, it really talks about this practice as a way of liberating the moment. That's helpful. Awakening the moment calming the moment, brightening the moment, to turn our own practice into a practice 
of verbs because that is a practice of process and it's a practice of immediacy. And it's relational to what is right now. And it's really knowing moment to moment that possibility of walking down another street. So if we take just a moment quietly together and then we have time for some walking. Thank you for your attention. We, we have some time now for a walking period, and I'm sure you've noticed there is actually something very lovely about the evenings here when it gets a little cooler and there's quietude. And then we'll be coming back, actually, for quite a short sitting. So if you can manage it, please do come. <laughs> 